Welcome to a new Neon Jazz interview with a Renaissance man and saxophonist from New York City, Russ Nolan. He spoke recently with Neon Jazz about his latest album called Relentless, and that's how he lives his life. Along with music, he's active in sports, martial arts, business, after-school volunteering, educating, and has some serious salsa moves. From the suburbs of Chicago to the jazz mecca of New York City, we talk about his journey in jazz, along with much more. Dig it. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm awake, showered, <laughs> in my groove, have coffee in my system, ready to go. Man, you're at 99%, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Um, so let me go ahead and start out with the alpha of your life. Where were you born and raised? I was uh, born and raised in the Chicago area, a small town, uh, which isn't so small anymore. It's called Gurney, Illinois. It's uh, 15 minutes from the Wisconsin border. So being in that area, how did that area help cultivate jazz if it actually did cultivate a love of jazz for you? Um, it really didn't because I, I, I really didn't spend much time in uh, the city of Chicago, which was you know, about a 40 minute drive from my parents' house. Uh, but I did become interested in, um, uh, I don't know how I even got involved playing in bands, but, uh, just one day in fourth grade, I was sitting with my, uh, band teacher who would become my band teacher. And he threw a bunch of instruments at me and, uh, said, okay, you're going to play clarinet. So that's, that's where I started when I was in fourth grade, I was 10 years old. And, uh, by the time I, uh, three years later, I, I had an interest in playing saxophone. And um, from there, I would say the most memorable experience that I had in, in the suburbs uh, was just going to a community college concert, and I heard uh, Toshiko's uh, alto player, uh, his name is uh, Gary Foster, uh, play a beautiful solo. Uh, he was featured in front of the community college band, and uh, that's what kind of hooked me initially. Right on. So what about your family? Were they musically inclined? Uh, my dad had an interest in um, uh, playing the clarinet when he was a kid. He never, you know, said, hey, I play the clarinet, you should too. Uh, he was a uh, cancer research scientist, so he had a whole uh, other realm of, of science uh, as opposed to music. I never got the science gene in that, <laughs> in that case. But uh, uh, he... He um, he bought an organ for us when I was probably eight or nine years old, and it was for him to play, and we started getting involved and uh, uh, took lessons on that. So I would I would say you know we you know even though I I was not a, a prodigy and you know my parents grew me to, for a music career, uh, you know music was always a part of their lives. You know, and they would go to community concerts and different things. You know, all styles of music, theater, so forth and so on. From what we had at the time. Yeah. So in in nineteen you know seventies. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that sounds great. Having an organ at the house. Um, yeah. So. Talk to me about how you went from a suburb of Chicago to New York City. Kind of recount that journey for yourself. Sure, sure. Well, um, the journey uh, started uh, at the end of high school. Um, I'd actually uh, quit band at that time. Um, at, at the time, my high school was uh, uh, very uh, marching band oriented uh, and not so much jazz band oriented. And today, uh, you know, they've got 
two or three jazz bands that that can play, you know, probably <laughs> at the level of most college uh, jazz bands. Uh, but back then, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of jazz going on, and uh, I decided to focus on my sports, and that's what you know our community valued uh, back then more than anything. And uh, I was a basketball and baseball player, so I focused on that. But once I was out of high school, I realized, well, what am I going to do? You know, I. I didn't make a professional baseball as I, I tried out for a few minor league teams. Uh, so I decided to uh, go into music and I had checked out a few colleges and I had decided to, upon Northern Illinois University. Uh, so I spent the first two years uh, there going to school. It's a, it's a college, a university about 80 miles west of Chicago. And uh, even in that uh, town, there was, or even in that uh, university, there was probably... 15, 20 saxophone students. I had hooked up with uh, two of my saxophone teachers who both went to the University of North Texas, which back in the day was called North Texas State University. It's a a very well-known jazz school. And uh, I transferred down there, uh, finished my education down there, uh, got a little dose, a small dose of what it's like to live in New York, uh, because there were then 60 tenor saxophonists uh, vying for about 18 spots in the jazz bands. So um, I got a good, healthy dose of competition and what it's like to compete in a larger environment. I then moved back to uh, Chicago and stayed there for 10 years before I decided to move to New York in 2002. Gotcha. So prior to your latest album, Relentless, what kind of projects with bands and albums have you been involved with? Well, mostly uh, I had done one uh, avant-garde record with uh, uh, the Schuler brothers, Ed and uh, George Schuler, is under the direction of uh, Burton Green, who's a uh, avant-garde uh, pianist. Uh, I have to say, most of my my ventures have been as a leader. Uh, I'm a strong writer, and um, I I know pretty much exactly what I want. Uh, and my my leader dates have covered. Uh, every, I started in, uh, recording in 2004 after getting a couple of years of exposure and, uh, you know, uh, absorbing all the great music that goes on in this city uh, with, a, uh, with a group of friends that, uh, uh, that I had been playing sessions with. And my second record, I decided to uh, hire the Kenny Werner Trio, who uh, Kenny Werner I, I've studied with, and he was actually the person who encouraged me to move to New York after taking a lesson with him in Chicago. Uh, And then uh, after that, in 2012, uh, that's when I started writing uh, Latin jazz after dancing um, salsa for a few years. So that's that's kind of the progression of of what I've done. I I do sideman work, but as far as recordings, it's, it's pretty much my projects. Absolutely. So talk to me about Relentless. It's a great album. Talk to me about the creative process, the personal journey to get to this album and get it out. Sure, sure. Well, it's, uh, the title is, uh, the title track and, and the title of the record is really based on the fact that I think an artist in any genre needs to be relentless in order to survive and, uh, make a go of it, uh, in 21st century, uh, America, uh, you have to just uh, keep on it and keep on it. And so I wrote a melody uh, basi- basically over the chord changes of Wayne Shorter's Fall that is just uh, h- highly intense, uh, 
never ending. You know, you think, you know, there's, there's, for a horn player, there's barely uh, the time to take a breath. So yeah. I, I had, a, I had a mark off in my part where I was going to actually breathe. You right. know, write the, write the actual letters, you know, to breathe. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it was really uh, another record um, that I had uh, written during the time I had a steady gig in Midtown at a, a, a little-known hotel. Um, and uh, we, we played every Tuesday, and so it was a great workshop to bring in new tunes for the guys to try and uh, complain over because they're too hard, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, basically, the last two records... Uh, I had uh, workshopped at that uh, location um, with Relentless. It was just a continuation of my uh, Latin rhythm studies. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, just the sheer number and uh, the diversity of, of, of uh, rhythmic structures throughout the Latin world. And it, it's been my goal to apply uh, the same dense harmonies and, and uh, angular and sometimes... Uh, you know, very staid uh, uh, melodic melodies over that, the same as some of my uh, uh, peers have done. Um, I, I greatly revere the writing of uh, Manuel Valera and his new Cuban Express, and that's why I wanted him on the record. Uh, David Sanchez, Miguel Zanon, uh, Danilo Perez. Uh, we can go on and on with the list. Uh, but I, I wanted to... Um, continue to study these great writers, my peers, uh, to kind of find myself in that category of, of Latin jazz, where I'm, I'm, I'm not simply putting a standard to a boss nova and calling it Latin jazz, but, you know, actually getting inside the music. Uh, I'm currently studying percussion to help me out on that aspect. Um, and I also have a salsa band, so that, that kind of helps, too. Um, you know, glean information from the players who've been doing this for a long time where I have not. Um, so it's, it's been a, an exciting journey, and Relentless is a combination of uh, tunes I like, or, or, you know, tunes that would work in another setting outside of Latin jazz with another groove underneath it, but, uh, you know, I started messing around with a bomba, and all of a sudden I had a measure of 5-4, and then it was connected to a measure of 4-4, four, four, and I decided, okay, well, this is going to be a bold, but it's just going to be a 9, you know, uh, uh, writing uh, Afro-Cuban 6-8 tunes, you know, with a, a certain clave uh, that I um, assigned to the bass player, and uh, the drummer, kind of, he, he figures it out from there. Uh, and then uh, I always like to write uh, a couple of arrangements uh, of standards or uh, popular tunes, uh, my, uh, the record Tell Me, uh, I had four arrangements on that record, uh, ranging from Beatles tunes to Michael Jackson to Stevie Wonder, uh, and even a Weather Report tune, and they're all taken completely out of context, but yet I keep the uh, melodic integrity. Uh, so for Relentless, I uh, actually wrote um, a tune that was recommended by a singer that I was going to write for her, but uh, she didn't like the harmony to it, and I did. Uh, it was uh, Stephen Sondheim's Not While I'm Around, which is probably one of the most played uh, tracks on the record as I, I get my radio reports. And um, again, it was something that was uh, taken completely out of context, all new chord changes, all new feel. It's in 4-4. Four, four. Uh, it's in 3-4. It uh, goes from a dark, somber, 
piano ostinato into a bright samba. So, you know, who's going to expect that? But that's uh, that's my uh, style of writing as far as arrangements is that I'm going to keep the melody so that people recognize it. And yet, I'm just going to turn the, the harmony and the rhythm uh, on its head. And usually take it in another time signature. So that was fun. And then um, uh, a week before the session, I, I decided to write another and it was on um, Duke Ellington's Solitude, which if you listen to that track, you know that's completely out of context. Yeah. But yet, I kept the bridge the same. Yeah. Uh, the A sections are are exploratory uh, in a more of a free jazz, uh, but not not as avant-garde as, as uh, some would call avant-garde, but, you know, just loosely improvised between Manuel and myself uh, with another piano ostinato, which, of course, I, I love. And um, there's really uh, very little improvisation. Uh, the, the point of the, of the piece was is, is the arrangement and... Uh, the textures, and that was also inspired. Uh, that style was inspired by a, a recording of I heard of a Lotus Blossom that Chris Potter uh, did uh, with his uh, underground group, um, and I actually heard that live at the Fifty Five Bar in New York. So, again, being in New York, you get to hear a lot of things firsthand that that most of the country does not, unless they visit. So you can actually participate as a listener in some of. Uh, my favorite musician's uh, creative process. Absolutely. So why why did you choose Latin jazz? Why did you go down that route? Well, um, as I alluded to before, uh, I started salsa dancing uh, seven years ago. And before then, I was not really exposed to um, the artists that I had previously mentioned, like Miguel and uh, David and Danilo, they all came through the jazz showcase in Chicago while I was living there, but it just really didn't stick with me uh, until I, I you know, I, my, my Latin jazz uh, vocabulary was limited to what I said before, where, you know, guys take jazz standards and they add a quote-unquote Latin beat. Well, you know, if you tell a rhythm section player, play this Latin, I mean, <laughs> you know, look at Funny, it's just not it's not a, a description of enough term to uh, tell them what to do. So um, I, I started dancing because ninety five percent of the uh, of the jazz community, unfortunately, is is male, and I was I was uh, actually looking uh, to uh, date more in New York uh, without without the. Uh, you know, the, the aid of mismatch.com and e-dissonance. So, you know, it's just, you know, and then I, I, it all came about because I was dating a, a girl at the time um, before I started, and I, she said, well, let's go to a dance class, let's go to a salsa class. And I realized that there were three women to every guy, and uh, the women were very, they were just happy that the guy would even try to dance. So yeah. I thought, well, situation changed, where to go? And uh, I got hooked up with... Um, the real Mambo King, uh, Eddie Torres, who basically, uh, well, he was uh, Tito Puente's lead dancer for his years, uh, and uh, he he basically started the whole New York uh, style of, of salsa dancing, which I won't get into the particulars, but it's a little different than most of the uh, most of the country. But he's uh, he's uh, you know internationally known and and is still at sixty three years old, you know. Uh, outperforming 25-year-olds. He's really amazing. So uh, through studying 
I realized, oh, you know something? I know that rhythm that we're moving to now and we're choreographing to. Uh, I should start applying this back to the music. And I just and I just realized, you know, as a dancer, I'm I'm just another member of the percussion section. Yeah. Or the rhythm. So it, it was inspiring me to go back and and with all the music that one can absorb uh, in New York City, uh, especially Latin jazz, uh, I thought, well, let's get, let's give this thing a shot. Let's you know and. Naturally, I did, from where I grew up, I did not grow up uh, in a household of musicians or had this music surrounding me. I mean, Manuel has been, uh, you know, he's probably been playing piano since he was five years old. His father is a well-known alto saxophonist and uh, played with Eric Curie, I believe, and, and a number of other groups. Uh, I think I, I just saw a video with him and Ignacio Barola. So... That was not my scene, so I've had to learn everything kind of the back way. Yeah. Uh, academic point of view, and as I talk more to, more to Manuel, uh, he says, well, you know, it's, it's not something you can force, you know. You, you just have to absorb it a little by little, you know. And sure. uh, especially the Cuban composers, uh, you know, it's traditional to write in clave for... Uh, for to start off uh, learning how to write Latin jazz, but um, now once once you write in clave, then you forget all the rules and you just write. Because yeah. oftentimes the clave is now more exciting than writing in clave. So you know it's a, a journey, and uh, certainly I'm just in the first few chapters of it. Uh, but that was the inspiration to go uh, the Latin jazz route. And what interests me the most is how the, the previous composers mentioned uh, will infuse the the uh, uh, modern jazz harmony that I'm more familiar with with my studies with Kenny Werner and, and just uh, playing it and of course recording it uh, how that matches with up against the uh, the Latin jazz uh, or, or the, the Latin jazz rhythms or the, um, because most of the time most of the salsa tunes that I've played before I mean the, the harmony is very simple it can't go too many places because it's going to trip up the dancers and the dancers are going to look at it oh this isn't salsa this is Latin jazz so anyway um, that's that's kind of the basis of why I decided on Latin jazz right on good deal uh, no go ahead make one other point sure. uh, I think uh, what, what has happened as far as a business standpoint uh, is that the people that uh, you know, I, I mean in general it's fair to say that the majority of, of anyone's audience are going to be non-musicians. Um, otherwise, it's just an inbred thing that we're dealing with today that the only people that come out and hear us play are our peers. But uh, what's what's happened um, positively is that the, the community that I've engaged with in the salsa community, many of those people that, that love music but are not musicians have come out and uh, heard my gigs. Right so, I, that's my audience, essentially. It's not right necessarily on. the girls, but it's it's other people that from other walks of life that enjoy the same music I do that come out and hear us play. That's so great. That's cool. So I hear you're a renaissance man. You're into sports, martial arts, business, after school, volunteering, music education. What out? What, what's the most important to you, or do they all play their own part? Equal importance. Yeah, I I, I think uh, all of it together has. Um, 
has kind of formed me who I am as a person, not necessarily has a direct uh, relation to my musicianship, but when you, uh, as Chris Potter once told me when I was studying with him, you know, eventually you just play like you are as a person. You know, the, the information is there, the study is there, all the, all the long practice hours, so forth and so on. Uh, but eventually, uh, for an artist, it's, it's the life experiences that a person has um, that they translate through their instrument or their voice is, is what really comes out and makes the artist who they are. Um, so I think it, I, I don't know if there's one thing uh, that has uh, formed me uh, artistically who I am, but I think it's, it's, it's just this collection of life experiences and uh, the, the diversity that I've had. Um, you know, uh, although I cannot uh, explain it uh, specifically, it, it, it all contributes to the same thing. It's Absolutely. All, it's all, you know, it's, uh, it's in the sauce. It's all, it's all in there. It's like Prego sauce, you know? Yeah. So. Absolutely. So how are you promoting your new album? Are you out gigging around? What, what, what kinds of things are you doing? Yeah, well, we have, um, as I've been working very hard uh, with my amateur uh, <laughs> uh, video production skills, I'm, I'm uh, working on a uh, promo video for our uh, March 21st. That's, um, well, that's three Fridays from now. Uh, we are having our CD release at uh, Jazz at the Catano. Uh, which is the Catano Hotel down just down from Grand Central. It's a beautiful jazz room. Uh, the uh, the booking agent keeps the piano in tip top shape. Everybody loves to play it. Uh, so we're we're having a CD release here in New York on the twenty first, and then in May I'm, I was fortunate enough to be uh, part of uh, the Firehouse Twelve concert series, uh, spring concert series in New Haven, Connecticut. It was a hard room to get into, but. Um, it's our debut there, and that's going to be May 16th. So on top of, uh, you know, having CD release gigs, uh, one that I had in January, actually, just as the record came out, was uh, in my hometown of Chicago at the Legendary Jazz Showcase uh, with uh, the musicians that I've been playing with for years there. So, uh, you know, having gigs for people to come here and play is important. Uh, I have a remarkable publicist, as you know, Terry Hinty, who who hooked us up, and um, I also have a, a great radio promoter uh, from Jazz Dog Promotions, uh, which uh, I believe my my record should be on on the chart on the Jazz Week chart very soon. I'm a couple spins away, so it all goes. And of course, you know, social media, absolutely promoting. Um, uh, your your blog on my uh, both my personal page and uh, just a half an hour ago on my band page, you know, to get Neon Jazz on there and uh, you know that's how you do it. It's it's everything. You Absolutely. Try to angle uh, all the time, and that's why it's relentless. Absolutely. Thing to do. Yeah, without a doubt. So I, I noticed that your influences are Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, Bill Evans, Chick Corea. If you could go back in time and meet a musician and watch him play, hang out with him, who would it be? Uh, well, that's a that's a tough question. There's, there's probably fifty of those, but um, you know, I would I would probably like to be 
the road manager for Miles Davis's 1960s uh, quintet with uh, Wayne and Herbie and Tony Williams and Ron Carter. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, most of those guys are at least three out of the, the five are still alive, and I can meet them. But um, I think uh, absorbing, even if I was just sitting in the audience, even if I never talked to them, just sitting in the audience night after night and listening how they pay respect to the people, the masters before them, yet take it to that next level with uh, the harmonies, with uh, metric modulation, so forth and so on. I mean, being part of that history and absorbing, I often say, you know, my father was born in 1930. I mean, he, you know, in his 50s when bebop was really chugging along, I mean, he was, he was 25 years old. You know, had he gone that route, he would have seen it all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think maybe, you know, and of course, gosh, I'd love to, I'd love to, I would have loved to meet John Coltrane, you know, and yeah. hang out with him. And I, and I think because of the person he was, uh, obviously that trans, translated into the music he played. He could be very intense, of course. And then he could do a beautiful ballad record like, you know, his record Ballads or the, uh, the famous record with uh, Johnny Hartman. You know, there's different facets of personality that comes out depending on the situation. Let me, let me ask you this. If we project into the future, say 20 years from now you release an album, what would you like to see underneath your bio on your press release? What do you want it to say about your career and as it's gone along? Uh, I, I would say... Uh, in general, I, I would say that uh, uh, Russ has uh, continued to put out uh, a better and better recording every 12 to 16 months for the last 20 years. And this is, you know, never saying that this is his peak, but, you know, that he's going to continue to, you know, uh, interest audiences by the next new thing that he comes up with and, and that people can see a progression from 2004 to, you know, 2024 or 2030, however long it takes. I mean, I, I plan to do this until I, I stop breathing. So, you know, my, my creative spirit wants to get something out every 12 to 16 months. Uh, you know, everybody would like to have accolades of playing with so, such and such and so on and things like that. But, uh, I think uh, staying true to myself, uh, putting, uh, you know, what I feel is in my soul um, out every, you know, out every year, uh, regardless of what, what the critics or my peers say about it. But, you know, just, I think it's just that, that uh, being a person of longevity, I think is really the key. Absolutely. So I don't. I, yeah, I don't know if I have a. You know, it's it's not about well, you know, Grammy nominator, Grammy winner, or five stars from Downbeat, or you know, it's it's not those kind of things. It's just to be an example of sticking with you know what's in a person's heart and what they feel their calling is. And twenty years, you know, who would have thought that he was still going? Right on. You know, that so good deal. As, yeah. So, when you look back at, on on your music career up to this point, do you have any regrets? Um. Well, I think the only regret I have, which I 
would would contradict what I said about having all these other experiences was uh, not being serious about music as a kid. Right. Um, you know, I, I was focused on sports, but, you know, we're, in in, uh, in some ways, we are products of our environment and what we're exposed to. Uh, I grew up in, in a very uh, intense sports town where music was just not that important. You know, music was subservient to... You know the the football coach wanting a marching band at halftime. Yeah. You know, there, there wasn't there wasn't talk of you know as my as my dad was uh, creating uh, you know breast cancer tests uh, diagnostics for his company. There there wasn't that level of intensity about finding the next you know Miles Davis or John Coltrane or the next superstar uh, music superstar in my in my community, it just wasn't there. So I would say if I, if I had to uh, do it over per se, um, knowing that I would take this career path, which I didn't really know until after, after high school, uh, I would have, I would have studied music a little harder, uh, more intense and taken private lessons earlier. But, you know, I, I feel I'm, uh, I'll be 46, uh, next month already uh, try not to think about it but you know uh, the fact is I'm still young I keep myself in the best shape I possibly can uh, I, my mind is young because I always want to create and, and learn the next thing uh, both my wife and I uh, although she's in a completely different field we feel that, that staying young is to keep dancing to keep uh, expanding our minds to learning different things uh, we're Finally, taking a Spanish class together. Uh, although she grew up in, a, in an environment where Spanish was uh, heavily influenced in her community, but uh, uh, you know, it's it, it's keeping young mentally. That's that's what keeps. I think has a great connection of what keeps people young physically. Absolutely. So, yeah, I you know, I, but at the same time, I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for those other activities. So it's it's funny. You know, there's a, in a larger sense, uh, part of who we are, uh, at least one person has said uh, that, uh, you know, half of who we are is that are the things that happen to us or, you know, the environment we're in, and maybe half or some degree is, of course, uh, determined by what we decide to do. So it's that, it's that individual combination that hopefully will continue to come out in my music. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what makes me un uniquely me. Uh, I don't have to tell you how many great tenor saxophone players there are in the world. Uh, you know, I live, you know, five miles from, you know, hundreds of world-class uh, tenor players, but there's really only one Rush Nolan, and, and that's, that's, uh, that's what I want to keep focusing on. Right on. So let me get a, a kind of a flavor of what you listen to. What's the last album or song you listened to before we interviewed today? Uh, well, I was listening to your blog spots because become more familiar <laughs> with your <laughs> with your program, and uh, I was uh, well. I was live. I was listening to uh, another Latin jazz uh, musician, Edward uh, Perez. We have probably one. Uh, venue in all of New York City dedicated to only Latin music. Uh, well, in Queens, I live in Queens. Yeah. Um, 
called uh, Terrassa 7, and it's a club that's only five stops away from my apartment. Uh, and uh, the tenor player on there was uh, Mark Shim, um, who's uh, performed on Luis Perdomo's record, uh, amongst a lot of others. Uh, but he has a heavy uh, Joe Henderson influence in his playing, which is, you know, he's an amazing player. So I was listening to your... Um, your uh, posting on uh, Horace Silver's uh, song from my father. Right on. Uh, oh, you know that that was a, a great choice by you, Joe. And uh, you know, I just I listened to the whole thing. Right you on. Know, taking taking care of you know uh, busy work and and things like that. It was great to hear that that classic sound from that era. Uh, as I said, I'm. Um, I'm always looking forward to, uh, you know, I'm always in the process of writing a new tune, bringing tunes to, new tunes to sessions, uh, because as we're, as we're playing and performing the music of Relentless, I've already written another nine tunes for the next record. Right so, on. and I want, I want to keep pushing myself, uh, and, and pushing myself, I've been listening to uh, a lot of uh, Abacua music, uh, Cuban music. Uh, I've been listening to. Uh, I continue to study uh, Manuel Valera's music with his new Cuban Express. Now that he has a couple records out, I'm, I'm always fascinated at how he puts things together. Um, <clears throat> even though he tells me he is not as scientific as it seems, you know, in our previous conversations. Uh, listen to Miguel Zanon. Uh, I'll listen to. Uh, uh, I, I have to say most of most of my my listening is is Latin music, or right just be, just because I I want to continue my immersion. But uh, you know, if there's uh, if there's a classical performance to go to, I've I've been uh, studying flute. I have a great flute teacher, who's uh, a longtime friend of mine, and we're we're trading flute lessons for jazz on flute lessons. So, uh, and we we go to flute society performances and hear. You know, Hungarian flautists, French flautists that are world class. And again, I, I think, uh, you know, for some of the difficulties living in New York, uh, the, the positives is, uh, you know, being right at the center of, of, of the culture and, and being able to take a train half an hour to go hear, you know, music that you just wouldn't hear anywhere else. Absolutely. Or at least maybe you know, once every five years. So, you know, it's it, it's all in there somewhere. It's it's in my brain. You know, whether it, it can be called upon when I really need it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, is is another thing. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm really not at a loss for words. But sometimes I'm at loss for a phrase to, or or an idea to write down on paper, or in the heat of battle on the bandstand. For some reason, the idea that I thought I had just didn't come to me. So, you know. It's it's uh, it's always feeding the brain. Well, you know the beauty of, the beauty of age is that hindsight's twenty twenty. But I'll tell you what: as time goes on, it's really hard to focus on things in a rearview mirror. You know, uh -huh. there's so much, and, and and it gets far away. But uh, you know, I think yeah. we we got a good overview of who you are over this interview. But I want to kind of bring it down to a pinhead, and I want to ask sure. you. And the length of one tweet in 144 characters, tell me who Russ Nolan is. Uh, as a as a person or as a as an artist? Both. Like the, the essence of who you are. Well, uh, 
I believe I'm a, a, a person always uh, striving for excellence and for truth. Uh, my music, uh, through music, uh, I not only satisfy the intellect of my peers, but I also reach everyone on a soulful level. I think that's about 140 characters. Yeah, that's it. I think you hit it right on the head. <laughs> Russ, it was my pleasure, man. You're a very cool cat. I, I'd love to meet you when you come to Likewise. town. Keep on uh, doing the good work. Yes, well, likewise, you know, without people like you, you know, there there is no jazz media. So uh, we we appreciate that you're getting out the word for us. Yeah, I love you guys, man. I, I'm, I'm here and I love the music, so keep on keeping on. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Kansas City, New York, and around America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Russ for his time and insight into his craft and dedication to jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to the famous interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes store. Or for all things Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.